The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com events where you can get your tickets. Always stay connected with 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Switch your home to Sky Broadband today. See sky.ie for more. Hello and welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Pat Leahy. Later we'll be discussing the cost of living and what we can expect from the coming months economically and politically with our own Jennifer Bray and UCC economist Seamus Coffey. But first, Brexit. Whether you think, like Boris Johnson, eh, it's not that big a deal, or like the Taoiseach, that it's a profoundly dispiriting, reckless and economically damaging act, it has been an important few days for the United Kingdom, Ireland and the EU, and for the tangled relationships that bind all three together. On Monday, the British government published its legislation, which will, when enacted, remove the legal obligations that Boris Johnson entered into on behalf of the UK when he agreed the treaty with the EU that governs trade and political relations between the two. The move was widely condemned as a breach of international law, except by Eurosceptic supporters of Johnson and by the DUP, who have complained that the protocol damages trade between Great Britain and Northern Ireland and therefore undermines the Union. So where is this reignition of the Brexit wars going? And what can we expect to see from each side in the coming months? To discuss this, I'm joined by our London editor, Dennis Staunton, and by David O'Sullivan, who's the Director General of the Institute of International and European Affairs and also a former Secretary General of the European Commission. So, Dennis, tell us a couple of days on from the publication of the legislation. What's the mood about it in Westminster at the moment? Did I detect a slight sheepishness about it from Boris Johnson Yesterday and today, there, there certainly looks to be some sort of Tory rebellion on this. I think it's a pretty small rebellion. It's gone a bit quiet. Today we had Prime Minister's questions and there wasn't a single question from anybody about the Northern Ireland Protocol. And uh, the conversation has moved on to this controversy over deportation flights to Rwanda and the whole role of the European Convention on Human Rights in Britain. And so there's actually been very little, uh, you know, it was really the, the story, in a way, it dominated Westminster for about 24 hours. And I think what you're seeing is really uh, the rebellion on the Tory backbenches uh, is quite small. Because if you look at the at the different elements of the Conservative Party, the uh, Brexiteers on the right, the European Research Group, they're pretty happy. They had uh, a hand in drafting this legislation. Their st- so-called star chamber of lawyers has been examining it, uh, but I'd, I'm not sure they're going to find anything that they don't like about it. So they're happy. And then uh, the other group, the One Nation uh, Tories, who might be expected to be unhappy with this bill, if they are, they're keeping fairly quiet. And that's for two reasons, I think. One is that 
that some of them are thinking about the fact that there could be uh, a leadership contest quite soon in the Conservative Party. And they really don't want to, uh, if they have any leadership ambitions, they don't want to mark themselves down uh, as having uh, you know, died on a hill for Brexit or over a Brexit issue. They really would like to neutralise Brexit, particularly those people who are on uh, the sort of remain, traditional remain wing of the party. And then the other thing is I think they're hoping that the Lords will do their dirty work for them. So that uh, I think the expectation here at Westminster would be that the bill will pass through the House of Commons and then it'll go to the Lords. And then the question is if the Lords are prepared to uh, to block it. And if the Lords block it, they can't completely block it, but they can delay it. And so uh, if, the, um, if the government uh, invokes the Parliament Act, that means that they can come back in the next legislative term, so usually in about a year, and uh, then they can push through this legislation without the Lord's approval. So when are we likely to see the first votes on this? Well, one of the curiosities about this is that the uh, government has uh, had its first reading of the bill, so that's just really the formal introduction of the bill, and then the debate really begins with the second reading of the bill. And the ex- we had expected that that would come sometime next week, but they haven't named a date for that. And that's partly to do with uh, these kind of backroom negotiations between the government and the DUP. What the government is hoping for is that the DUP will go back into government in Northern Ireland or will at least make a very clear declaration of its intent to do so. So what they would want as a minimum, as a minimum is a, a pretty swift re-election of the Speaker, a nomination of the Speaker of the Northern Ireland Assembly. And then what they really want uh, the government is to be able, when this goes through the Commons, to say to the Lords, look, the DUP have gone back into government. If you vote this legislation down, they'll walk out again. So if the Stormont institutions collapse, it'll be your fault. And they'd be saying the same to the European Commission. And so what they're trying to do is to put pressure on the DUP to move more swiftly along this path towards going back into the institutions. And one of the things they're dealing, they're doing is they're kind of delaying uh, any announcement of exactly when the bill is going to have its second reading. So that, uh, so that could be, I mean, they, they say that they would like to get it all done before the summer recess. So that would mean that they would have their first votes in the next few weeks. But, uh, you know, we still haven't, haven't got a date yet. And am I wrong in detecting that this strategy, as you've outlined it, is almost entirely directed at domestic politics rather than actually trying to, you know, either reach a new accommodation with the EU or show the EU its, its, its muscle domestically. Yeah, it's not. In fact, it's not just. It's it's narrower than that. It's actually conservative party politics. So if you look at, uh, without uh, talking about motivations, but if you look at the interests of the various parties, so you say the DUP has an interest in uh, some kind of changes to the protocol, so that they can uh, tell their people and their voters that they've achieved something, and that and so to try to reunite the unionist vote behind them, the. Right wing of the Conservative Party, the Brexiteers, in a way, 
uh, one of the reasons they didn't push for Article 16 to be triggered, which would be a pretty quick way of having some, uh, you know, of, of making changes to the protocol, because the protocol is going to operate in the way it does now until such time as A, this legislation goes through and B, ministers actually trigger any of this action. So, uh, so you could, could have done it quicker. But what the ERG felt was that the danger would be that the Article 16 would start a new set of negotiations and Boris Johnson might do a deal. And that deal might be the wrong deal. It might be a bad deal from their point of view. So for them, in a way, they have an interest in a deal not being done unless it's something that's very pure, the kind of deal that the European Union can't possibly uh, agree to. And then from Boris Johnson's point of view, He's got a party management problem. So what he wants to do is to shore up his own position and he wants to uh, to make sure that, you know, when more misfortunes befall him, that he's not going to have, instead of 41% of uh, the uh, the Conservative MPs trying to get rid of him, 51%. And so if you look at the, the nature of this this bill, it's so extreme and it's so maximalist that it can't really have been drafted with the expectation of negotiations with the European Union. If, for example, the British had produced some plans, say, for the green lanes and the red lanes, something you know, you know, along the lines that the Europeans are already thinking about, if they were to do some of that with a, a few extra bits and pieces thrown in, that could be somewhere on the dance floor of a potential negotiation. But the fact that they've, for example, proposed this dual regulatory system, the fact that they've thrown in bits about the European uh, Court of Justice, the fact that they've got these uh, powers which they can invoke to actually scrap every part of the protocol with the exception of the common travel area, north-south cooperation and human rights protections, that suggests that this bill is not really a serious attempt at negotiations with the European Union. David, if if I can turn to you, so what's your assessment of how the EU has digested the text of the legislation and assessed the British strategy such uh, as it is? I mean, we saw today, uh, as expected, there was the announcement of the unfreezing of the, the, the legal action that was initiated last year. But that seems, to me at least, to be a... a reasonably modest and minimalist response, no? I mean, I think as as Dennis has said, there's a large recognition here in Brussels that this is really not a serious attempt by the British government to, to enter into a negotiation. And that feeling has been there for, for many, many months. Indeed, uh, the, the EU has been saying that actually the, the British government has not engaged on this subject uh, since last February. Uh, in the slightest. So this really comes as the kind of ultimate proof that the, for, for Brussels that the UK, this, this UK government is not serious about actually addressing the very real issues that are there and for which it is believed solutions can be found. The, the relaunching of the, the legal proceedings is a sort of minimum response just to show seriousness. I mean, it is an egregious breach of international law. I mean, you know, it, it, we should not forget that. And Dennis, of course, is absolutely right about the domestic politics, but it has really um, shredded uh, whatever, you know, credibility may have remained for the Johnson government's uh, international reputation, at least certainly speaking in, in, in Brussels. So that's, that's the attitude. Now people are uh, exasperated, frustrated, um, but the EU will, will always respond in a very measured way because, as Dennis has pointed out, uh, we've a way to go before this actually becomes law. 
uh, before it actually has an impact in the real world, uh, and therefore the the EU will will keep its powder dry and and only move progressively uh, in response to to real developments and not just to uh, uh, announced developments. So that's what you're seeing. But I mean, you know, it, it's part of a a pattern, I would say, where where people have largely given up uh, in on on the hope that th- there can be a reasonable discussion about these kind of issues with with this current. British government and and find practical solutions to to real problems. And I, I mean, I've seen the suggestion that you know, as you say, the EU will respond in a in a measured but also a progressive way. That uh, so it now unfreezes previous legal actions, so maybe more legal actions, and uh, and so forth. But that you don't really get in get into a sort of shooting war with uh, with the British government until such time as the legislation is on the statute books. Is that how you see things playing out? Yes, legislation on the statute books and implemented. I mean, because again, it's, it's, it's one thing to, to have it on the statute books, another thing to actually trigger it and, and, and implement its, its, its measures. So uh, I, I think, uh, and the, the EU again reiterated its willingness, uh, uh, as Dennis just mentioned, uh, to, to explore some of the, some of the ideas that have been out there, you know, green lane or express lanes, green lane, red lanes, some way of further facilitating the flow uh, of goods between GB and Northern Ireland. Though it also announced today uh, that there have been a number of seizures of of uh, illegal uh, weapons, of of drugs, of uh, counterfeit goods, and so forth, just to demonstrate that you know the idea that there's there's nothing to worry about in trade between GB and Northern Ireland and the onward flow of that trade uh, into the Republic and into the EU single market. That that there are things to worry about, and that any uh, any system which is not completely watertight risks to be. Uh, ruthlessly exploited by by smugglers and and people with uh, you know financial interests in bending the rules. So it's your assessment then, if if I'm correct, that we are some significant period of time away from uh, you know the, the situation where you could be looking at you know trade sanctions, uh, a trade war, the sort of the thing that that Marasevkovich seemed to be warning. Gently and obliquely, but clearly, nonetheless, in his statement on Monday, where he talked about the loss of trust undermining the entire EU-UK trade agreement. We're a good bit away from, uh, from that yet, you think? Yes, I mean, again, the EU will will respond to to real events uh, in 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 Westminster, but more importantly, on the ground in Northern Ireland, uh, and uh, it 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 can live with the the current situation uh, as as a sort of temporary uh, way of managing the the the, the, the protocol. Uh, if the UK were really to move in the direction which this legislation indicates, then then you would see an escalation. Until that moment, I think the EU will 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 try not to provide, uh, uh, will not want to react in a way that gives Boris Johnson or the DUP or others uh, the excuse of saying, "Ah, oh, see, there's the EU again, uh, escalating and making things worse." Dennis, we talked earlier about you know this being a strategy that is entirely domestically focused. You said focused entirely on the Conservative Party. Do you think that there is behind all this any sort of a coherent plan or desired end game on the part of the Johnson 
administration about where it wants to get to vis-a-vis the EU, how it's going to get there? Or is this all just about the instrumentalisation of the, the protocol problems for domestic purposes? I think that the government has kind of shifted here and there in terms of its thinking about the relationship with the European Union. But I do think that right now, because of Boris Johnson's position uh, politically within his own party, I think that he uh, has plumped for pleasing the right wing of his party. He had for a, a bit earlier on in the year, he'd been trying to please everybody in his party and he found that wasn't really working for him. So he's now really gone for shoring up support on the right. And I think also that uh, that the, the people, uh, his advisors and he, Boris Johnson, appears for the moment to think that actually it would be a good idea to have part of your re-election campaign being something about keeping Brexit done. So uh, 2019 was get Brexit done, now it's keep Brexit done. So they've been suggesting that, uh, you know, Labour would unpick the agreement, that they would try to re-enter the uh, European single market. So I think that there's, you know, uh, you know, having said that, I wouldn't, uh, characterize this as being a really well-thought-out strategy. You know, this is a Downing Street that can only really see what's right in front of its face because it's really surviving from day to day. But I do think, to go back to what David was saying, and it was very interesting, that I, I think that, uh, you know, the EU will always be measured in its response, but I would think it would be unwise for the EU to be too measured in so far as one part of the political reality here is that the the most effective argument against this legislation so far by Labour, for example, has been that this government is being reckless in risking a trade war at a time when the British economy is fragile. So when you have people like, say, Olaf Scholz, the Chancellor of Germany, referring to the whole toolkit available to Europe, this is the kind of remark that actually has some impact in Britain. Because I think that while, obviously, you know, as David says, Europe is not going to ratchet up its response until such time as something real is happening. I think that uh, it's no harm for uh, the political world in Britain and specifically at Westminster to know that actually when they talk about the the possibility of this affecting the whole of the relationship, the fact that the trade and cooperation agreement was based on a foundation of the withdrawal agreement, the fact that this whole thing is actually at risk, that these have to be kind of credible threats, uh, in a sense, you know, even if the threat is not being explicitly made by the European Commission. So it's a delicate uh, area, and that's why people like David have uh, been employed there to work out how they, um, uh, how they should do this in, a, in an effective but calibrated way. But I'd say, not, I'd say don't be too calibrated. <laughs> well, let's go back to him uh, then, back to David, because one thing that struck me during recent trips to Brussels was the extent to which the EU has very much, as a body, moved on from Brexit. I mean, the days when you and I, Dennis, and Paddy Smith used to be, the three of us used to be over for summits, and they talked about Brexit from the Thursday afternoon until the Friday evening. They're gone, and even speaking to Irish government sources, you know, they are constantly trying to keep the issue of the protocol, the issue of Northern Ireland in front of uh, of EU decision makers. But, you know, while there's, you know, it's clearly Sefcovic is, is, is dealing with it, it has nothing like the same purchase in Brussels now that it did once upon a time. And I, I wonder if there is... Uh, you know, a, a, a danger, say, from the UK's point of view, but also really from from Ireland's point of view, is that, uh, you know, the, 
DU will respond to this problem in a way that it responds to lots of lots of other problems without devoting or investing the same amount of time and, and, and emotional energy as it did before. I think you are right that uh, Europe has moved on. And, and frankly, you know, when you look at the, the, the range of challenges facing the Union, you look at the, the upcoming summit next week, you look at that agenda, uh, Ukraine, enlargement, energy, uh, supply, uh, the, the whole climate change agenda. Uh, this is all massively much more important now for, for the European Union. I, I, I don't think there is any risk that there will be a lessening of the strength of feeling about the fundamentals of, of how to deal with the British government. Uh, I know that some people in Westminster say, oh, now, you know, Britain playing a role in the Ukraine uh, conflict, uh, uh, Eastern European countries will now be less uh, supportive of taking a tough line with the UK. I, I don't believe that for a moment. It's not at all what I pick up here. People are genuinely incensed and angry about what the British government is doing. Honestly, it's been going on for so long, they've kind of they have got a bit bored, yes. I mean, it's kind of one, yet again, uh, the Johnson administration does something outrageous. But it, you know, if, if needed, uh, the, the, the strength of feeling will be there to be mobilized and to push back, uh, and, and to not let the British government get away with, with not, with not respecting the, the commitments it has entered into. But you are absolutely right. This is no longer a major talking point in Brussels. There are far too many other much more important important points uh, needing to be dealt with. And, and finally to you, David, do you think that the EU would be inclined to simply sit back a little bit and see what happens in London? Because, you know, Dennis and I discussed this on the, on the pod last week, but there, you know, there must be at least a reasonable chance that there's a different prime minister by the end of the year, certainly by next year. And if we're talking, as we mentioned earlier, about the longer timescales for any serious escalation in hostilities, uh, if, if I can put it that way, then there must be a temptation for the EU just to sit back and see what happens. Indeed, I don't think that they are going to uh, do anything dramatic uh, uh, soon but for the reasons we, we, we've just been discussing. I mean, it will be a measured response. I, I take Dennis's point that it shouldn't be too measured, but I, I think the, the messaging which British diplomats are getting in, in European capitals could not be, could not be more clear. So I, I don't think there's any illusion uh, in the British government on the strength of feeling uh, amongst member states about the way in which the UK is behaving. But I do believe that the Commission will continue to engage with stakeholders in Northern Ireland, will continue to explore ways in which within the four corners of the protocol, uh, some of the legitimate concerns about the extent of the checks and the nature of the checks on GB or Northern Ireland trade uh, can be uh, reduced and, and, and minimized. Uh, and we'll be ready to engage in, in that constructive way if ever the British government come back to the table, which they clearly for the moment have no intention of doing. So in that sense, there's not a lot else the Commission can do except wait and see. And Dennis, just finally then, do you foresee any serious re-engagement by the British? If it, will they come back to the, 
the table as David has suggested? I don't think so. I mean, on the basis of this legislation, you know, Boris Johnson can't retreat from this legislation. He's just introduced it. So, uh, you know, he can't uh, immediately walk back from it. He is in great uh, political peril. His fate rests in the hands of his MPs. 148 of them uh, last week voted uh, no confidence in him. If uh, suddenly 70 members of the European Research Group were to decide that they no longer had confidence in him because he betrayed them on the protocol, then that's the end of him. And so uh, I don't see any prospect at all until, you know, as long as Boris Johnson's in office, for any change really in this uh, approach to the Northern Ireland Protocol. Dennis and David, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Stay with us. And in a few moments, we'll be talking about the cost of living and where it's going. Up, I'm afraid. Never suffer the buffer again. Always stay connected with 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Whether you're streaming on the sofa. Gaming in the bedroom. Or swiping in the bathroom. I said swiping. You'll never be without it. Switch your home to 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Availability subject to location requires Sky Broadband Ultrafast. For more info, see sky.ie forward slash speeds. 99.9% reliability based on time our broadband network works across our base. Welcome back. Now, the rising cost of living is the most immediate issue facing governments all over the world. Post-COVID inflation has been supercharged by the economic effects of the war in Ukraine, with the result that the Central Statistics Office now reports inflation at a 40-year high of 8%, with fears that it may climb higher. Public sector workers are in talks about a pay rise, and opposition parties are howling for an emergency budget. To discuss all this, I'm joined by our political correspondent, Jennifer Bray, and by the UCC economist, Seamus Coffey. So Seamus, I'm, I'm going to turn to you first with an easy question. How long will this continue and how bad will it get? <laughs> uh, well, we just don't know. Um, clearly, we're in a position of, of high inflation at the moment. And it's the rate of change, uh, I suppose, is the alarming issue to see inflation of 8%. We haven't seen this in, in a long, long time. How long will it continue? Well, I guess, given that a lot of the inflation is external, we just don't know. Um, like a lot of it isn't really caused by domestic factors. Some of it is. We've issues maybe in relation to rent inflation, uh, but lots of it is driven externally. The price of energy, global food prices, they're feeding through to us now. So starting off with the easy one, no, we don't know how long it will last. And presumably it could get worse and maybe a lot worse, could it? Or is there a natural ceiling beyond which inflation probably won't go because uh, I guess consumption will, will fall off? Well, there's no natural ceiling. Um, prices can continue to rise. Like, a fear would be perhaps that you could end up maybe in like a 1970s type situation where you have uh, a consumer price, wage price, a wage level kind of spiral uh, where they both end up chasing each other. Uh, now, I think we've learned the lessons from the 1970s, because although we we had those in the 1970s, they led to significant problems in the 1980s. So I think um, policy, particularly at central bank level, will try to avoid that. But no, there's no limit. Um, potentially uh, inflation could persist and these prices could keep getting higher. And we've seen it advertised at central bank level that we can expect possibly a, you know, a, a longish period of rate increases, which obviously people will feel most particularly on their, on their mortgages um, if they have them. Will central banks be at all, and the ECB in particular, 
Well, domestic, economic, and presumably in time, political difficulties for governments. Will will they give the ECB pause on a, a series of rate rises? Or is that just baked in now? It's going to happen when we can get used to it. Yeah, like I think that the ECB have been maybe surprisingly uh, clear in what we call their forward guidance. Like they've told us what they're going to do in July and September in, ter- in terms of rate increases. Now, obviously, they did have an emergency session today uh, because of a, a spike in Italian bond yields. Uh, but when it comes to interest I don't think they're going to change. They said they'll rise by a quarter percentage point in July and either a quarter or a half a percentage point in, in September with the likelihood of further uh, increases to happen. Will it lead to, to significant fallout? Well, I think perhaps surprisingly from an Irish perspective, we're not in a bad situation, a bad circumstance to deal with these interest rate rises. Yes, they will uh, impact negatively some people, but it's possible they could impact positively others. Uh, over the last while, Irish households have built up huge amounts of deposits. Uh, now, one thing we haven't seen with deposits is anyone get interest. Um, ECB deposit interest rates are negative, so it'll be a while before they turn positive. Um, and um, all bank accounts are, are pretty much at zero, so maybe that could increase. And when it comes to mortgages, like anyone with a tracker rate mortgage will see an increase, but from a very low level. Um, and lots of Irish households have fixed um, their interest rates and their mortgages. So maybe if interest rates stay high for, for three, four, five years, they might have an impact. But at least immediately um, it won't. And then the final, the big one, is, of course, the government debt. Um, that would raise a concern. We've closed on $250 billion of government debt. But actually, a lot of that is also locked in at the low interest rates we've seen for the past while. So I think at least initially, at least that, that type of pressure you're talking about, it mightn't develop. But if this goes on for a sustained period, then you could see some the political fallout uh, sort of grow from there. And what about the pressure that we've seen in recent days on bond yields, on the, the rate that governments must pay to borrow money? And, you know, there's what looks like, I'm sure they don't use the term emergency, but it looks like an emergency meeting of the ECB board uh, today uh, on this. Is is that something we should be concerned about? We all remember when we became suddenly in, uh, literate on the uh, on the taxonomy of, of, of bond yields more than a decade ago. But is this something that is going to have a direct effect on the budget framing that the government is now entering into? Yeah, and like, will it impact the budget? Perhaps not directly, but, but I think it shows that the DCB are sort of trying to ride two horses at the same time and, and they're possibly going in, in opposite directions. Like they're, they're trying to put some curb on, on the inflation we're seeing. But as we say, a lot of this inflation is driven outside the euro area. Um, so maybe not directly impacted by interest rates, but the ECB have indicated they will rise interest rates. But then you see that leading through to higher interest rates for the likes of Italy, um, who have a much higher level of debt than us. Uh, and have it over a shorter period, so more of it comes up for refinancing on a regular basis. And if their interest rate rises, well, they're spending more money on interest rather than on supporting their economy. And the ECB have said to governments, you should be supporting your economies. But it's difficult for the ECB to say that, and then at the same time be pushing up interest rates and having governments spend more and more money uh, on interest. So the recent spike in the Italian bond yields uh, sort of gets us back to a decade ago, or 2010, when all these things were looked at sort of more on a minute-by-minute minute basis. But it has spiked. Now, even the announcement of the meeting. Now, you're right, the ECB didn't call it an emergency meeting, an unscheduled meeting, but they only arranged it yesterday. 
But even the announcement of the meeting had a big impact on those yields. The Italian 10-year yield went from 4.2% to 3.8% just because they said they were meeting. Like These people have huge power. And actually, they didn't agree to a whole lot today. They're, they're going to keep an eye on things and they talked about a new tool, but we're not quite sure what it is they did. Will it feed true to our own budget? Unlikely. As I said, most of our debt is, is locked in at those low interest rates. And uh, I don't think, at least for this year's budget, it'll have a big impact. Jen, um, we hold unscheduled, non-emergency meetings all the time um, between ourselves and with, uh, and, and with TDs. So what are you hearing around Leinster House from... TDs in the in in the various parties on the cost of living issue because everybody I talk to it's right up at there at the front and center of their immediate considerations. It's what they're hearing from their constituents all the time. Yeah, I think it. I think that's true to say it is top of the agenda politically um, in terms of of national politics. Um, I think the first thing to say is that the government has been coming under intense pressure and will continue to come under intense pressure to intervene before the budget. Um, Now, privately, some ministers, they are anxious about this. They have been for quite some time, anxious about the impact of inflation, rising costs, and the fact that it's becoming more and more difficult for an increasing number of people to make ends meet. Um, that you know, this is bread and butter stuff, effectively, literally. Sure. Um, um, but the official line has been, and I think it will continue to be for the foreseeable future, is that nothing is going to happen until October's budget. What the government has argued effectively is that, look, we spent around 2.4 billion already on different measures uh, since we've seen these issues with inflation uh, begin last autumn. Um, and that's what we will, con- you know, we will leave it at that for the moment. You know, they they point towards the cut and excise duty on, on, on petrol and diesel, um, the electricity credit and, and other measures. But, you know, one of the issues that's been raised by the opposition party, specifically Sinn Féin, is even if you are to wait until October's budget, every year, like listeners of this podcast will know very well that when the big measures are announced on budget day, and there's a lot of kite flying beforehand, but even when they are announced, it's often the case that those changes don't come into effect until the following January and the charge that's being put politically from the opposition is Sinn Féin, the SOC Dems, PPP, um, Labour is that people can't wait until next January and the fear is that the political impact that maybe would result in them going ahead with that plan to wait until next January. Of course, they could move faster and introduce changes in the finance bill. Um, but this is where it's at politically at the moment. I think that the expectation with inflation politically is that it will continue at quite a high rate for the rest of the year, perhaps around 7% or so. So there's no expectation politically that there's going to be a let up. And that pressure, as you say, is going to, is going to build. I know you were at a doorstep this morning to publicise there's a, a march taking place on uh, on 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 Saturday, of which there is cross-party in the opposition, at least support for and uh, and participation. And I was at the Social Democrats conference uh, at the weekend and one of their, uh, they had a number of, of, of demands on this front. Um, many of them bundled up in the fact they want an emergency budget. Now Sinn Féin have been talking about, talking about an emergency, or the need for an emergency budget for several weeks now. And it seems to me that the way this is playing out in government is that Pascal Donoghue and uh, his colleague in public expenditure, Michael McGrath, 
are pretty resolute that they are not going to make any more substantial budgetary moves before the budget. But the political pressure on them is is growing. And, you know, uh, Pascal Dunne, who is the Minister for Finance, but he's got a boss too. I suppose he's got two bosses. You know, he's got the Taoiseach and, and he's got his his party leader. And, you know, as uh, as you mentioned, you know, people, government ministers and Taoiseach was saying this very clearly in Brussels last week, there's not going to be anything until October. But you talk to people privately and they seem a little bit less certain. Are you, are you picking that up? Definitely, yeah. And I think the pressure is only increasing every week. And it's hard to imagine a scenario in which this is let continue until October. Now, what the opposition are calling for is effectively a mini budget. What the government says is we, we, we've done more since the last budget than we actually did in the last budget for to tackle the cost of, of, of living issues. So if that is the case, then effectively it can be done because it has been done. Um, so, you know, I think they'll come under pressure uh, to, to, to address that. And you mentioned, you know, for example, the Sockdowns conference at the weekend, like the cost of living was the number one central theme of that conference. And if you look at the different demands that the opposition parties are making, there's a common thread. Like at the Sock Dems, they were calling for, I think it was a 300 euro refundable tax credit for people who earn up to, to 50 grand. They wanted a hardship fund. They wanted an immediate 10 euro increase in core social welfare rates like pensions, their publicly funded childcare, a cut to university fee, a living wage, and the living wage is, is the Labour Party's, one of their main proposals, they want a, a living wage bill that would effectively uh, provide a, a quicker pathway to, to a living wage over three years. And if you look at what Sinn Féin are consistently calling for, they brought a motion where they called for, again, another cost of living payment, which would be €200 Euro for every adult on less than thirty grand, and €100 Euro for those between 30 and on incomes of between thirty and, and €60,000, as well as a rent credit for, for a one-month rent and all those other things like uh, uh, welfare and childcare. So the, 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 the demands across the opposition to me seem to be fairly uniform, albeit that they focus on different things. Everyone wants I, the government to give people money. Everybody wants the government to give people money. The big fear, and you mentioned Pascal Donoghue and and the the finance side of government, the big fear is that if you pump money into the economy and if you pump money into higher welfare rates or pay, increased pay, like we've got these pay talks on uh, at the moment, is that you chase the inflation and that their budget becomes part of the problem. So far from being something that fixes this, addresses this and makes it better, it bakes it in long term, which is just not... Sustainable. Well, if, if only we had an economist on hand to explain this to us. Oh, wait a minute, Seamus. If, <laughs> would, would further measures, you know, a mini budget, although the government certainly wouldn't call it that, but further anti-inflationary measures, you know, which I guess would have to come sometime in July before the, uh, before the political recess, would that make economic sense? Or would it be a case of politics trumping good economic sense. Yeah, I think you're you're absolutely right. There is a concern that you could end up uh, chasing the inflation and going into that sort of spiral uh, we referenced earlier. But at present, if we look at the Irish inflation, even the euro area inflation, again, a lot of it is driven by external factors. This debate is very strong in the US, where much more of their inflation is actually domestically driven. They pumped in far more money into the US economy during the pandemic uh, than happened across the euro area. So although the rates of inflation in the US and the EU and the euro area might look comparable, 
actually the underlying inflation is somewhat different. So the US, they've already started increasing interest rates and are likely to continue. Um, but they're trying to curb a lot of domestic inflation. In Ireland, the euro area, again, a lot of it is outside of our control. We import a lot of our energy and our impact on global food prices is limited. So I don't think at least as, as of yet, that the government would end up chasing inflation. Now, in response, something should be done. Um, and the, the inflation actually will give the government some leeway to do something because the inflation, at least starting out, is a net positive for the exchequer uh, because taxes are collected on percentages if prices are rising, if private sector wages are rising. We will see that feed through in, into VAT and income tax. And you can go through a whole list of things that uh, the opposition have called for. Well, some of them have merit. Um, and because of the additional revenue that the government would collect, they would be in a position to do so. Uh, we may get into looking at the size of the budget package as the summer progresses. I'm sure the government will be publishing maybe a, a summer economic statement and other things like that. Um, and the inflation will be included in that. Uh, and that will allow scope for re to, to react to it. So whether it's in public sector pay, on core social welfare rates or specific target measures, uh, I think we are going to see something. Can they hold up to the budget? Well, that's a, a political issue. Uh, but there's no doubt that as this inflation uh, bout continues, uh, we will see more measures introduced. But from your point of view, looking at it purely through an economic lens, it's not necessarily the wrong thing to do to introduce further measures, you know. Oh, no. Um like, like we, we must recognise, first of all, that because the inflation is external, like it is a reduction in national welfare, we are worse off because of it. Like if we are spending more money on imported oil or imported gas or other forms of, of imported energy and also on imported food, well, well, that's a loss for us. So the government can't make the pain go away. Uh, but they can take into consideration the distribution of it um, and whether that is looking at those paying income taxes, those facing higher costs for, for the purchase uh, of groceries, etc. So like there is a strong argument to be made um, for, for the government to do something. Uh, the danger would be that you end up doing too much. Uh, and as said, you end up with this inflation spiral. That's a concern. Uh, but it's certainly not something that's visible at the moment. Jen, politically, sometimes this stuff can be a bit overstated you know if, you know if you, people cast their minds back to you know the last time there was not on this scale but there was an inflation spike and uh, during the mid noughties everybody was concerned about rip off Ireland you know and that turned out to be you know politically a bit of a a, a bit of a damp squib this feels a, li a little different uh, I, I think it feels more real and I think as the year progresses we're going to hear stories of real hardship for people on the margins, which will be politically a, a lot more pungent, I think, than, uh, than might otherwise have been the case. I totally agree. And I think um, if you look back to previous, you know, political issues, I'm thinking one example would be the medical cards controversy, the thing that really undid it for the government at the, t at the time were the personal stories of, for example, kids who had their medical cards taken away, maybe kids who had cerebral palsy, etc., who no longer get access to their medical care. I remember that that was a turning point in a debate that had been happening for months about the pros and cons of medical cards cuts. But when those case studies came out, 
the whole game changed and, and, and the tide turned against the government at the time. I remember that very well. And I think it's the case here as well. And, and I think the, in, the interesting thing is everybody is feeling it. Everybody's looking at their, you know, their bank accounts um, at the end of the month or at the middle of the month or whenever and saying, I, I can't afford basic things that I used to be able to afford. It's obviously hitting people on lower incomes much, much harder. But like there's a lot of stats floating around, you know, energy prices are up 57%, food prices are up 5%. It feels like everything has increased. And I think you're right, like the, the, the longer this goes on, we're going to hear about the, the real term impact of, of this. And even, you know, you mentioned that our imported energy, you know, we have some of the highest uh, and higher electricity prices than the European average because we import so much around geographically. And there are all these unfairnesses like already baked into it. And, and the problem is, um, you know, we'll have this summary economic statement what that will tell us is basically how much money is available um, next year. And let's take, let's take for example, if, if there's 1.5 billion euro, as an example, for the government in new spending in the next budget, think of all the places they have to find to split that up into. So this is the, the challenge. This is the squeeze. There's going to be deep unfairnesses arising from this, like welfare cuts, welfare increases, tax cuts, childcare, third level fees, um, hospital waiting lists, the housing crisis, public sector pay, inflation. I mean, I could go on and on. So the squeeze is happening now, but it will be really, really evident, I think, after the summer recess. Well, it's not going away, but neither are we. Thanks to Jennifer and to Seamus. This episode was produced by Suzanne Brennan with sound by JJ Vernon. We'll talk to you all next week. <laughs>